0: Hey, this is Brian Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Last week, we talked about the formation of Metallica down in Southern California in late 1981. Now, just a few miles away in Los Angeles, and a few months earlier, in January 1981, another band was formed that would be pivotal in launching a musical genre. This time, that genre was what's been called glam metal. Or hair metal. That band was Motley Crue. Motley Crue's founder was a guy named Frank Farana, born in San Jose, California in 1958. After his father left the family, he was raised by his mother for a while, but later moved in with his grandparents after his mother abandoned him. Farana moved around the United States quite a lot while living with his grandparents, and as a young teenager living in Jerome, Idaho, Farana showed signs of being a troubled kid. He broke into people's homes, vandalized property, sold drugs, and shoplifted, which earned him an expulsion from high school. His parents sent him off to live with his mother again, who had since relocated to Seattle. In the short time that Farana was there, he tried his hand at playing bass, buying one with money he obtained after selling a guitar that he had stolen previously. The story goes that he walked into a music store and asked the guy at the counter for a job application, sending him into the back and allowing himself to grab a guitar and abscond with it. Ferrana moved back to Los Angeles in 1975 at age 17 and started auditioning for bands while he made ends meet with any number of jobs, two of those being selling vacuum cleaners over the phone and working at a liquor store. Around that time, he unsuccessfully auditioned for Quiet Riot, while Randy Rhodes was still in the band. After that, he would join a band that was formed by Wasp frontman, Blackie Lawless, called Sister, after answering an ad in that same classified ads paper that Metallica used, The Recycler. Farana's time in Sister was short, however, the band fizzled, and Farana, along with Sister bandmate and guitarist Lizzie Gray, went on to form their own group. Called London. Now, London is really interesting because if you're into the genealogy of how musical scenes happen and how bands form and break up and result in the formation of other bands, London was literally a breeding ground for future rock stars of the 80s sunset strip era. The band was formed in 1978 by Gray and Ferrana, who around this time had changed his name to Nicky Six, after those two had left Sister. Sister's drummer, a guy named Dane Scarborough, stage name Dane Rage, also joined them. So, in essence, they basically left Blackie Lawless and Blackie's band name behind. They recruited a singer named Michael White at that point, who bore an uncanny vocal resemblance to Robert Plant. White left the group shortly after, claiming publicly that Six was, quote, hopelessly on drugs and he had loaned the band some money to prepare for a gig, and when he approached the venue after their gig for the band's pay, he was told that Six had already taken the money. To this day, White still claims in the press that Nikki Six owes him 800 bucks. After White left, there were a number of lineup changes, and the band added former Mott the Hoople singer Nigel Benjamin to the group. Then he left. After his departure, Six got tired of the lack of progress in the revolving door that the band had become, and he himself left London. And he was replaced on bass by none other than, you guessed it, Blackie Lawless. And then he left to form a band called Circus Circus, which would later become Wasp. Lizzie Gray was the only constant, really, throughout the band's history, and in London's second era, which began in 1984, the band would inadvertently launch a number of future rock stars, future members of bands like Keel, The Cult, TKO, Jeffreya. They all passed through London at some point. Cinderella drummer Fred Curry left the band to join Cinderella. He was a London bandmate of guitarist Izzy Stradlin, who also left the band to form Hollywood Rose with Axl Rose, who of course later would become Guns N' Roses. Albeit for a very short period, even Slash, from Guns N' Roses, was a member of London. Eventually, after a decade, two albums, 19 different band members, and virtually no commercial success, founding member Lizzie Gray left London in 1988 to form a band called Spiders and Snakes, which, unfortunately, were never able to achieve any significant amount of success either. Gray died in 2019 at age 60. My heart breaks for that dude, it really does. It's tragic irony, really. He was most known for being unknown. Alright, so back to Motley Crue. The band officially formed on January 17, 1981, but only with two and a half members. After Six left London, he had recruited teenage drummer Tommy Lee Bass from his Sunset Strip Band Sweet 19. Lee may well have turned out to be the best musician in what would later become Motley Crue, but in assembling the band, Six was very much focused on a visual appeal, having been heavily influenced by early glam bands like T Rex and Bowie, and then also the theatrics of Kiss. So it's not unreasonable to assume that Six wanted Tommy Lee in the group more because of his flashy, stick-twirling playing style, and for hitting cymbals so hard that he actually broke them. Six and Lee jammed with singer and guitar player Greg Leon for a little while, who was also from Lee's old band Sweet 19. Leon eventually decided that he didn't want to continue on with them, and Six and Lee decided that they would look for new members for this heavy theatrical band that they wanted to create. As their guitar player, they brought in a guy named Bob Deal, also through the recycler, by the way, who had reinvented himself in 1981 as Mick Mars. Now, this was an odd choice because not only did Mars not at all resemble the androgynous-looking types that were taking over the Sunset Strip at that time, but he had also just turned 30 around the time that the band formed, making him a full 11 years older. Than Tommy Lee. Now that's a major age difference at that point in life, a nineteen-year-old playing with a thirty-year-old. But as Six probably wanted the experience that Mars had after having already been around the block for the past decade with unremarkable bands like Whitehorse, and because he was older, Mars was probably also a little bit desperate and more likely to flex to Six's leadership and vision for the band. Tommy Lee knew someone named Vince Neil Wharton from high school who sang in a band called Rock Candy. Vince Neil was apparently selected to front Motley Crue because he, A, looked good, and B, did a great Robin Zander, according to Tommy Lee. It took some time to charm Neil into the band. Now, I have to admit that I actually did laugh out loud when I read Neil's bit in Motley Crue's book, The Dirt, when he commented that Motley Crue got him when he, quote, was weak. Neal initially turned down Motley's offer to join the band, but as rock candy began to splinter, Lee asked Neil again, and he accepted. Vince Neal was hired on April 1, 1981, and the band played its first gig at the Starwood in L.A. on April 24. Before that gig, the band had to come up with a name, however, and in interviews, Nikki Six has said that he told the guys he wanted to call the band Christmas. They were not at all receptive to that idea, and one night they were sitting around trying to come up with something else. And Mars remembered a time from his White Horse days when one of the guys in the band remarked that they were a motley-looking crew. Mars was amused by that, and he had written it down on a piece of paper as Motley Crue, spelled M-O-T-T-L-E-Y-C-R-U. After that spelling was modified slightly, Motley crew with the spelling of M-O-T-L-E-Y-C-R-U-E, was what the band would go with, with Neil suggesting to add the two sets of umlauts to make it look more metal. This apparently was inspired by the German beer Lohenbrau, which the members happened to be drinking at that moment. In November 1981, Motley Crue's debut record, Too Fast for Love, was self-produced and released on the band's own label, called Leather Records, also with umlauts and EU, and it sold 20,000 copies. Newly appointed manager Alan Kaufman arranged for a brief tour of Canada for the band while he negotiated a proper record deal on the strength of Motley Crue's growing popularity on the Sunset Strip. Electra Records signed the band in early 1982, and Too Fast for Love was then remixed by Queen producer Roy Thomas Baker, and it was re-released on August 20th, 1982. The Electra version had a different track order than the original Leather Records pressings, and it omitted the song Stick to Your Guns, as well as the first verse from the title track Too Fast for Love. The funny thing was that the initial release of the album by Elektra in Canada on both vinyl and cassette was not actually the remixed version. It was just the original leather version with an Elektra label on it, and it did include Stick to Your Guns. This was done because Motley was about to go on that Canadian tour, and Elektra wanted to make sure that some form of product was available while the band was in Canada. When the remixed version was completed a short while later. Future Canadian pressings were the same as the electro version issued everywhere else. So during the Cruising Through Canada tour 1982, a couple of widely publicized incidents occurred. In Edmonton, the band was arrested at the airport for wearing all of their spiky stage clothing through customs, as it was considered dangerous weaponry. You know, it's funny because I remember as a 13-year-old kid seeing pictures of those leather wristbands with the raised spikes on them in Hit Parader and Circus Magazine and then looking for them in all the shops, but they were nowhere to be found here in Canada. The country actually did outlaw them. Also in Edmonton, Vince Neal had with him an assortment of porn magazines in his carry-on, which was considered indecent material by the authorities. Both were intentional PR stunts staged by the band and management, it would be found out later. Next, when the band played their Scandals Disco gig in Edmonton, someone called in a bomb threat, and that earned the band front-page publicity. Tommy Lee would be interviewed by police as a result, and sure enough, this was also a staged PR stunt perpetrated by their management. And after Lee threw a television set from an upper-story window of the Sheraton Caravan Hotel in Edmonton, Motley Crew was banned for life from the city. The tour was a financial disaster and ended prematurely, but it garnered some international press for Motley. The band dropped Kaufman as a manager in 1983 in favor of Doc McGee, who would also go on to manage Kiss and Bon Jovi. Kaufman was forced to declare bankruptcy as a result after having mortgaged his home more than three times to cover band expenses. Motley Crue's second record, Shout at the Devil, the one whose ad in Cream magazine jumped out at me and initiated my teenage infatuation with Motley Crue at the age of 13, was released on September 26, 1983. Shout at the Devil broke the band mainstream in North America. It sold 200,000 copies in its first two weeks and it would go on to be certified four times platinum. The record generated a lot of controversy for its title track and album imagery, both of which intentionally used Satanism in order to attract attention. The pentagram on the front cover spurred Christian and conservative groups to proclaim the band was encouraging their listeners to worship Satan, which I always thought was kind of funny and ridiculous. Nikki Sixx had brought all of this stuff to Motley Crue after his sister days with Blackie Lawless. Sister had been a very theatrical, occult-themed band, possibly the first band in L.A. to incorporate things like a panogram and other occult symbolism into a theatrical metal show that also deployed things like blood, fire, face makeup, etc. Apparently Six actually asked Lawless for permission to use some of Sister's occult-related imagery for Shared at the Devil, since at that point Lawless was intent on moving in a different direction. Blackie's response was interesting. He said, quote, Take whatever you want, because at that point, I realized that with an image like that, you end up painting yourself in a corner and you can't get out. Hmm. Soon the band would get the attention of the Prince of Darkness himself, Ozzy Osbourne, and Motley Crue found themselves in the opening slot of Ozzy's 1984 Bark at the Moon tour. By this time, the band were making quite a name for themselves for their outrageous look, heavy makeup, heavy hairspray, leather, high-heeled boots, and never-ending consumption of alcohol and drugs. Of course, Ozzy was a welcoming host for all of this, his wife and manager Sharon not so much, but right before Shared at the Devil was recorded, Motley Crue was kicked off Kiss's Creatures of the Night tour after only five shows. Gene Simmons demanded that they be replaced based on their bad behavior. Poor Gene, that must have been like dealing with four super-thirsty Ace Frailies. After completing several months of touring and support of Shout at the Devil at the end of 1984, Motley had a couple of days off, and Vince Neil decided that he would throw a massive party at his house in Redondo Beach, California. Lots of people were there, including some of the guys from the band Hanoi Rocks. The drinking and the drugging went on for days, and Neil borrowed his neighbor's car so that he and Hanoi Rocks drummer Razzle could go to a local liquor store for more supplies. They made it there, but on the way back, Neil lost control of the car and veered into oncoming traffic at 65 miles an hour, colliding head-on with another vehicle moving in the opposite direction. The crash plunged the driver of the other car into a coma that lasted for a month, and both she and the passenger sustained permanent brain damage from the incident. Neil himself avoided injury, but Razzle was pronounced dead at the scene. He was 24 years old. Neal was charged with drunk driving and vehicular manslaughter, and for a while it looked like that would be it for Motley Crew. As it turned out, Neal only served 30 days in jail, 200 hours of community service, and paid $2.6 million in restitution to Razzle's family. Another drunken Motley Crew car crash would give rise to controversy again, but this one took place before Vince Neil's, and the controversy was of a much different type this time around. During the recording of Shout at the Devil, a very intoxicated Nikki Six decided that he wanted to drive his friend's Porsche around Los Angeles, so he stole it. Some reports say that he was not wearing any clothes at the time of the theft. He crashed the car not far down the road and sustained serious injuries to his shoulder in the crash and he was prescribed Percocet, which contains oxycodone. At that time, a commonly prescribed medication with which to treat severe short-term pain. Six's dependency on Percocet gave way to a debilitating addiction to heroin that he estimated cost him $3,500 a day, and according to him, actually killed him for a few minutes. An episode that would later inspire the Motley Crue hit, Kickstart My Heart. Now, as I said, that incident took place during the recording of Shout at the Devil, apparently seriously injuring Six's shoulder. This gave rise to a theory that Six was rendered unable to perform by the crash, potentially ruining the ascent to fame that Doc McGee had anticipated for Motley. And the theory is that someone named Matthew Tripe was approached by Doc McGee to stand in as Nikki Six from July 1983 to April 1984. Tripe went to the press with this story in 1988, claiming that it did in fact happen, that he was sworn to secrecy via signed contracts, and that he was never properly compensated for it. It's a crazy story. According to Tripe, he moved to Los Angeles from Erie, Pennsylvania, and befriended Mick Mars one night at the Troubadour. Mars asked him if he could play bass, and explained that his band's bass player was in a car accident and that there may be an opening in this band as a result. Tripe said that Mars brought him into the McGee Entertainment offices after hours to meet with McGee, Tommy Lee, and some others to audition. He claimed to have played the Montley Crue song Danger and some other song, and then he was asked to sign four contracts without being allowed to take the time to read them. He was asked to sign them Nikki Six, not Matthew Tripe. Once he was in the band, Tripe claimed that he was whisked into Cherokee studios and that he cleaned up songs the band had already written, saying that they were weak and that he had spiced them up by adding new arrangements and satanic references. He also says that he toured with Motley Crue while they opened for Kiss and Ozzy. Tripe was adamant that he wrote Wild Side, Girls, 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 you're All I Need, City Boy Blues, and Knock'em Dead Kid. He also claims to have written all of Motley's next record, Theater of Pain, except Smokin' in the Boys' Room, which is a cover, and Home Sweet Home, because he wouldn't have written a wimpy song like that, according to him. Tripe goes on to say that he was removed from the band because of an armed robbery he committed that led to a jail stretch in 1985. He stipulated that he hired private investigators that were holding the copyrights for the songs that he wrote. He also claims that he wasn't paid at all, and years later, when he launched this bizarre story, he claimed that he had assembled a legal team to bring the case before the courts, and he refused to settle out of court because his case was so strong. An American journalist named Ed Esposito interviewed Tripe in 1988 and submitted the piece to Kerrang! magazine. After reading it, it's clear that there are significant inconsistencies. For example, Tripe claims to have met McMars in June 1983, joined Montly Crue, and went into the studio to write and record Shout at the Devil in July 1983. But the band had already played the Shout at the Devil material at the U.S. Festival on May 29, 1983. There are some aspects of the story that are questionable enough to give rise to a smallish conspiracy theory, though. Tribe presented some photos that are allegedly of him as Nicky Six on the Theater of Pain tour, and they actually look more like him than they do of Frank Farana, if you look really closely at the features. One of the pictures is of him with Motley Crue tour manager Richard Fisher, which is really peculiar. The other unusual aspect of this story is that the publishing credits on the records changed from Nicky Six music to Sicky Nick's music for no apparent reason. Tripe claimed that this was done to distinguish between songs he wrote and songs that Frank Farana wrote. I've always wondered about that. My personal assessment of this bizarre story is that if there's any truth to it, it's an extremely small amount. If Doc McGee actually did see fit to substitute someone in for Frank Farana so as not to lose any momentum leading up to the shout at the devil release, it would have most likely been for a very brief period of time, maybe during a few key moments. If any substitution was indeed made, it certainly wasn't carried out on the same scale that Tripe describes. Matthew Tripe's case was eventually thrown out of court, and he died in December 2014, at age 51, of liver failure. These days, Doc McGee denies the entire thing, saying that he never really looked into it because it was so far-fetched and ridiculous, and that managing Motley Crue was crazy enough as it was. He couldn't handle any more drama. So there you have it, folks, the beginnings of Motley Crue. I kind of lost sight of the band after Theatre of Pain came out just because I wasn't a big fan of the direction that they went in at that time. But, you know, they hardly needed me. Obviously, they would go on to sell millions of records anyway. I still do give their early stuff an occasional listen, however. Those first two records will always be special to me, regardless of artistic merit or quality, if only just because they commemorate my youth. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury. I'm Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Separate, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.